It's my privilege today to continue our series on the first three chapters of the Bible. And uh, this whole term we've given over to these three chapters. And I hope uh, if you've been around for our series so far, you've, you've seen how packed these three chapters are. And I've really only covered two so far, uh, actually, of just wisdom, of profound foundations to life. <laughs> and there's been loads of stuff. And so today what I'm planning to do is we're going to be moving on next week and the week after to kind of Genesis 3 to the coming of sin and death and the hope on the back of that as well. Uh, but just to kind of summarize where we've been up to so far, I want to pull some strands together and I want to underline some things we've already seen. Uh, I'm not going to give us a whole load of new stuff probably today that we haven't seen in the last few weeks. But what I want to do is to bring these things together and also particularly to bring some practical application for us uh, from these things. To think, well, how does this affect us? It's all very interesting. It's all up in the air, some of it. Uh, but let's bring it all together for, to apply as well. And in classic preacher fashion, I have not one, not two, but three points. Okay. But I'm not going to tell you what they are because that would be way too simple. We are going on a journey of discovery for these three points. We're going to find them. We are not going to leave any stone unturned. And if you will come with me this morning, we are going to look for these three points and find them together. Okay? Each of the three points will be uh, answers to some of the deepest questions human beings through the ages have asked. So all I need to ask is, are you ready for this journey of discovery? Yes. Are you really ready? Because I'm going to need five of you to come and help me with something. So uh, uh, let's be quick about this. We haven't got all day. I want five helpers, please, uh, to help us get back into Genesis chapter 1. I know, I know it's more of a case of who doesn't want to do it, because I could just choose people who look awkward. You know. But come on, five of you. Come up here. Come on. Don't be shy. There's nothing to worry about. Johnny. Yeah. Come on. You can do it. You're looking really cagey. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Oh, we got four. we got five. On oh, they're sitting backwards. Cool. Hey, man. Nice to meet. What's your name? Ethan. Ethan. Cool. And it's Andrea. And they, you don't need to sit with your backs to us. I'm going to shame these guys. I'm just going to sit there like that. Right. Stand up. You got to stand here. Um, don't worry. Thank you. You've, 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 there's obviously no surprise. I'm not going to do anything to humiliate you. You can do that yourselves in a moment. Um, but what we're going to do is, um, in a minute, just have to stand there for a moment, and there will be some. I would say acting, but as Timo, for Timo, that would be an insult to your profession. So um, there'll be something. But all you need to do for a moment, just I'll talk for a minute and I'll bring you in a minute, but you just have to get into a chaotic frame of mind. Okay, just do that. <laughs> Genesis 1, 1 to 2 says this, beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Feeling chaotic? Okay, in a minute you'll be triggered in, don't worry. Okay, there's enough space here. Um, what's the initial state of things according to Genesis 1? Interestingly, it's not nothing. We believe as Christians, uh, God made the world from nothing. Creatio ex nihilo is the, is the theological phrase. Okay, we believe that. That's taught in the Bible. It's just not taught in the bit that everyone thinks it's taught from. Because at the beginning, we don't have nothing. We have something. And what is it? It's a right mess. It's chaos. Okay. Uh, now, guys, this is your part. I want you to act out chaos, please. <laughs> this is, these guys are good. Oh, this is good. Yeah, keep going, keep going. That okay? <laughs> no, no. What have we done? Uh, I might be replacing one of the team. Okay, this is good. Um, chaos. I try to do this in a chaotic way. Has two elements. Okay, chaos is formless. 
and it is empty. It lacks order. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and it also lacks life. Can't keep being chaotic. You're doing such a good job. <laughs> Chaos lacks order. It's a mess. And it always, then, if it's a mess, it lacks life, because life does not flourish in a mess, okay? So the earth is formless and empty, but good news for some of you who are already thinking, why did I come to the front? The Spirit, <laughs> the spirit of God was hovering above the water, uh, waters, and he's not keen on leaving the chaos as it is. So well done. Good work for chaos. Okay, let's, and this is what he does. Okay, so let's do it like this. He grabs, so we've got two features of the chaos. Darkness and water, okay? Two ancient symbols in ancient literature, symbols of chaos themselves. So he starts with the darkness on day, day one. Let's go with uh, this one. <laughs> you can be the darkness for many reasons. <laughs> right, if you come over on, on number one. I really did, Sam, you had me so worried there. That was uh, one of the moments. I've never thought that might happen in a preach before. Um, so if you stand behind day one, on day one, God may, uh, he goes to the darkness, but he doesn't leave the darkness. He says, let there be light. And so, Johnny, you can be the light. But he, um, what the word is in the passage, if you come and stand behind day one, and I'll organize you. If I could just have you here, just like there. Johnny, you come, no, no, just to the side. This would be good. God, it says he separates the light from the darkness. Very important word in Genesis 1. He separates, okay? And there was evening, and there was morning, day. Okay? Then he goes day two. And what's the other thing we had? We had darkness, and we had water. Good, water. So, Ethan. You can be some water. In fact, I think, Andrea, we'll need you for some water as well. So if you go behind day two, because we've got water, but then God does another separating, it says. So if you stand right next to each other, and if one of you, Andrea, if you could just hold that slightly higher and slightly lower. He separates the waters in the heavens from the waters on the earth, okay? What's that about? Or different opinions. Some would say, well, the water on the earth is simple. That's the sea. Could be the clouds, I guess. Uh, probably more likely, they did have a worldview. We talked about this a few weeks ago, where they believed there was water above the firmament. Could be talking about that, but basically, it's sea and sky, really. But it's separating. Okay. Next, Dan, you've been so patient. If you come to day three, and I will borrow Ethan. If you just shift across slightly as well, you see, this is all very, as you'll see, very well organised. Um, another separation happens here from the waters on the earth emerges from that the land. Okay, and another separation happens. He separates the land and the sea. You know what? I'll move you back here. That's good. You go there. Now, notice this. For those who've read ahead in the story, you'll know we are only halfway through the days of creation until, yes, there's a seventh day they rest on Andy. I was just do some banter in between. You see, we'll deal with that sort of stuff. I, you see, we'll have to deal with it as a preacher. Um, but um, and halfway through, however, one of the issues with the chaos is complete. It's, it's done. The problem was the earth was formless and empty. By the end of day three, one of those problems has been fixed. Which is it? Formless. It is no longer formless. Remember them? Okay. And now we have form. Separated, separated, separated. The first three days are ordering days. They are structuring days. They are organizing days. They are categorizing days. But while the earth now has a form, it is still still empty. Funnily enough, that's exactly the story of the last three days. And God does it in complete work. In the order of the passage is very striking here. God returns to day one. Okay, let's, you guys follow me. This is gonna be, come around the front or we're going to have an injury and it will be my fault. To day four. So Johnny, you come as well. So if you come behind day four, sorry, I'm being very demanding. But I'm being organized. That's what I'm trying to do. Okay, you, Sam, Sam, follow me. 
He's, he's, still, he's still acting the part. He's still in chaos mode. That's fine. Okay, come to day four. So he deals with day one was light and darkness, and then he fills the light and darkness. What does he make on day four? Sun, moon, and stars. Let's fill. Oh, that can go in there. Sun in the light. Uh, and the moon and the stars filling the darkness. There's a filling role now, okay? And there was evening and there was morning, day four. So then what he does is he takes what he did on day two. You guys, again, come around the front so we don't stack it to day five. Sorry if I could shunt you. I should, you know what? That's better. Let's do it. And you guys come over here. We've got the um, waters above and the waters below, and he fills it, obviously. So he makes birds. That is a bullfinch, apparently. Just so you know, I'm uh, already at that point where I know the names of birds. Pray for me. Okay. And there's some generic fish. Goldfish is all I know. Shark, I don't know. Okay, there we go. If it's a fish. Uh, Fills what he formed. And then on the last day, we've got, uh, if you could go around down to day six, you can see the pattern already. He goes to what he did on day three. And uh, what are we going to put on the land then? Well, he fills what he formed. Animals. Squirrel and lion. It's about all I know of the animal kingdom. So that can go in there. Pretty much sums it all up. And people. We've got people of all uh, sizes, all ages, all uh, genders, all ages, all ethnicities. He puts them in there as well, okay? Now, good work, guys. That's really good. Now, notice this. This is really important. Look at the pattern we've seen here, okay? Got out of an issue with chaos. Formless and empty. Days one to three forms. Days four to six fills. Can we have a big round of applause for our helpers, please? <laughs> Guys, could you just grab one chair each? And, and the, actually, could you sit the buckets on there as well and just take them off? Is that okay? Thank you so much. Give them a big round of applause. Give them another job. They've been very helpful. Oh, sorry. Um, notice this pattern then, uh, as we see here. This is really important. Formless and empty, and he forms and he fills. Now, we've got to take special notes on this. And especially, I think we miss this if we look at Genesis 1 as primarily a chronological account of what originally happened at the beginning of time. We miss this. Because whatever this chapter is or is not saying about what actually happened at the beginning of things, it is certainly far more concerned with telling us something about God and who he is. The author structured this chapter incredibly carefully. It seems to tell us not what happened in what order, primarily, but to make a point about God. And here we have it, the first treasure on our journey of discovery, the first point. And it's a profound point to a massive question about the nature of God. It's perhaps the first thing that we find out in the Bible about God. Is point one, God is a God who brings order and life in the chaos. God is a God who brings order and life in the chaos. I want you to soak this in. I want you to think this through. I want us to respond to this in faith even now because we don't often dwell on this amazing reality enough, I don't think. Our God is the chaos orderer. Our God is not panicked by the chaos in our world and in our lives. He's got a proven track record of fixing it. It's what he does. It's even who he is. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. Completely different context, but surely referring right back to the beginning. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. He's not a God of disorder and formlessness. He's a God of peace. He's the order and life. It's who he is. I want you to apply it right now. I want you to think of the chaos now that you're worried about. 
And it could be chaos that's very far away that you see on the news, you know, chaos from uh, corrupt regimes or natural disasters or climate change. That might be the chaos you're worried about. You think in a minute, we're just going to pray, suddenly put them before God very quickly. We don't spend ages on it, but I want you to respond in faith to who God is. Might be chaos that's closer to home. Might be chaos in the lives of your friends and your families. Broken homes, result of physical illness, mental health problems like we talked about last week. Or breeding concerning situations of chaos. Might be chaos nearer. Actually, for you, maybe, if you're being honest, the chaos seems much nearer than even than that. And when you look at the chaos that worries you most, it seems to be inside you, in your day-to-day life, your work situation, your inability to hold down a job, financial situation, inability to, to defeat addictions in your life. It's just a chaos that seems there, and it worries you. And, you know, we, we worry by these things. You know what? God is the God who brings order and life from the chaos. I just want to leave 30 seconds. Whether you've prayed loads or you've never prayed before, this is the God we worship here. This is the God we've been singing to. Bring him your chaos. Ask him for order and life. He's going to pray. God of gods, thank you that you're a God who brings order and life from the chaos. And I ask you for every prayer that's been even just thought of just now. I pray you'd rush in and you would bring order to situations that seem out of hand. Lord, you bring life to situations that seem to have brought nothing but death. Uh, Lord God, we put it before you. We're confident you raise faith in our hearts, Lord. And would you act even this week in these things? Amen. So this is encouraging to know we can pray to a God like this. But as we go back to Genesis 1, we find that praying is not the only thing that we can do here. So what we find in Genesis 1 is, I I didn't get to say, I think I said it sporadically throughout, but I didn't get to say there was evening and there was morning on day 6, because God's not done on day 6 at this point. Because everything's formed, and everything's then filled with heavenly bodies, fish, birds, uh, animals, people. But we find a surprising thing. God doesn't finish it off. He brings the pinnacle of his creation to complete the task with him. Genesis 1, 28. We've heard it a number of times recently. It says this. Then God blessed them, that's human beings, and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. We're given a job here, and it's got three bits to it, but look at the middle sentence. I think sums it up the best. Fill the earth and govern it. I wonder if that rings any bells to you, that little phrase. Because amazingly, this is exactly what God's been doing for the whole of Genesis 1. Filling and forming. And this what he says to us, fill and govern. Govern is bringing structure. It's bringing form to formlessness, or at least it should be. It's kind of what Jonathan said a couple of weeks ago, you know, the image of God stuff. We're made in God's image. It says it just before this. Well, what does that mean? It means we reflect something of God. Well, it's another way of saying it. Well, what's God been doing up to now? He's been filling and forming. So as we reflect him, we are called to do exactly the same thing. And what we find now is, guys, we're on a roll here. We found the second of our three points. This time, it's an answer to the question of, huge question, what were we made to do well, we get it here. What were human beings made to do? Many people say, oh, you can't answer a question like that for all human beings. Well, the Bible says you can. It's not massively prescriptive. We'll, we'll apply in a minute. But this is, this is incredible stuff. 
What were we made to do? We were made to bring order and life in the chaos. God's the God who does it. He calls us to do the same thing. What were you made to do? We know. God tells us right at the beginning. Bring order and life in the chaos. What does this mean, though? It can seem very up in the air and completely nebulous. Can we ground this at all in our lives, in what we do? Now, I think there'd be a, a temptation for us, often, uh, particularly in, you hear a talk on a Sunday morning at church, we jump straight away to, oh, this means this is how we do church stuff, isn't it? This is something to do with how we pray or uh, how we worship or evangelize or the spiritual things we do. And yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, we can apply it there. But we have to be really, really careful we don't jump there too quickly here. Because you see, Genesis 1, Rich made this point the other week. Genesis 1 makes it very clear that God is concerned with the kind of things that Christians have spent years trying to convince ourselves that God's not concerned about. He's concerned about things like this. He's concerned about the earth. He's concerned about water. He's concerned about fish. He's concerned about, he's concerned about birds and land and the environment and, and even human culture. And if God's concerned about them, so should we be. Our vocation, our calling as humans, actually, to bring order and life in the chaos, I think is, is most uh, relevant regarding the bits of our lives we see as not spiritual, really. So to put it bluntly, whether you're in work here or you're out of work, whether you're earning 100 grand a year or you're on the minimum wage, whether you're looking after kids full-time or you're in full-time education, when you wake up in the morning... There is a job description over your life that is the same as every other person's, and it's from, not from your boss at work or your, the, the head of your department at university. It's from the one who made you, and it says, today, go and bring order and life in the chaos. Let's ground this more. I want to apply this specifically, and I can't do this to everybody in the room, but I want to apply it to three groups, and hopefully this will give you enough to be able to grab hold of this in what you're doing. Okay? I want to, first of all, just pick out two groups that I think embody this brilliantly already. And if you're thinking, what does this mean again? I want you to think of these two groups, because they do it really well. And the first would be stay-at-home parents. If you're here and you're a stay-at-home parent, I want to say well done for being a prophetic demonstration of the call on hu all human beings. Well done. Keep going. I think some of you might be thinking, What? My life is incredibly mundane. <laughs> like, I do this stuff. My brain is slowly turning to mush. I can barely have a conversation with an adult anymore. You know, how is this working? Well, think about this. When you're tidying away your kids' toys, when you're washing their clothes, when you're slowly training those little bundles of chaos to stay seated at the table and to uh, wipe their nose and to uh, flush the toilet after themselves, well, what are you doing? Well, you're doing what? God made us all to do. You're doing what God himself does. You're bringing order and life from the chaos and teaching others to do exactly the same. I want to say, what you're doing is a sacred work. It's a work with great dignity, although I'm fully aware that not every moment of it seems like you're being a rock star. I'd encourage you, keep going. Well done. Keep modeling what God's called us all to do. Second group would be this group. Those of you who would be in some form artists here, by artists I don't just mean painters or visual artists, I mean anyone involved in artistic disciplines, creative craftsmanship, you know, writers and photographers and filmmakers and musicians, all of that sort of stuff. Again, you might think, what? What's that got to do with anything? Well, think about this for a second. The artist will take 
the formless. They'll, they'll take like the palette of colors and the array of disjointed sounds and the, the words, uh, the words, the dictionary of words, which are just kind of there and they, they kind of just there separately in that way. And what they do is they, they pull them together. They form them. And they, they use the rules of their, their specific disciplines in this way. The rules of uh, kind of uh, melody and the rules of aesthetic composition and poetic structures and all of that sort of stuff. And they pull that from that randomness. They bring together form that if it's done properly, it brings life. It gathers your attention into it and then it brings life. Artists, if you're an artist here or someone who's just... Maybe you're at that point in your life where you're thinking, I've got these skills, and I've got these abilities and these desires artistically, but are they really worth it? It's a bit of a waste of time. It's, I should be something like, do that thing, because it's, I need to just give this up. I want to encourage you, actually. That's probably not the case, because what you're doing is a prophetic demonstration of what all human beings were called to do, to bring order and life in the chaos. And I would encourage you to keep going. Good work. Others look at the artists in what you're doing and how you apply this. Finally, just for those, and maybe this will be for a different group of people, for those who work in job situations that are presently, you would describe as chaotic, okay? Some of you would think, yep, I know exactly, that's exactly the word I would use. Yeah, those sort of things. I think for some of you students here, you might have noticed this already. You came in bright-eyed to your degree, and suddenly you realize you've done a placement or something. You've found out a bit more from the, those who graduate think, whoa, did I really want to get involved in this field here? It's chaos. Not just in places of work, but in the whole field itself. I mean, talk, I'm not making a comment politically here, uh, but medicine, education, social work, those sort of things where it's, it seems a little bit out of control what's going on. I'd encourage you, if you're in those jobs or you're going towards those jobs, to see your job through this lens. My calling from God is to bring order and life in the chaos. Because if we do that, we see two things happen straight away, I think. And the first would be this. If we see our jobs, our chaotic jobs through this lens, we see that the fact that our professions or workplaces are chaotic is not on itself a reason to leave. And it's not a reason to switch course. Or to quit. And I qualify this. I know that sometimes you can only put up with some situations for so long. You can. That's, that's the situation. Sometimes faithfully you have to say, no, I've got to get out. But on its own, the chaos is not a reason to leave. Why? Well, it's because God looks down at Genesis 1-2 and he sees chaos and he says, where do I want to be? Down there. That's where I'm going. I'm heading to the chaos. I'm going to bring order in life. And so when we see chaos around us, who are the best people to be there? God's people are the best people to be there. We see that just because there's chaos, it's not a reason for us to leave on its own. Second thing we see then is what our specific calling is in the chaos. If I ask you this question, if I say, in your studies or in your work this week, how Christian were you? Did you do your job or studies Christianly? It's not a word, is it? Christianly this week. But if I ask that question, I want to discuss among yourselves. I would imagine most of you are Oh, you know what? What he means is, did I tell people about Jesus this week? Did I share my faith this week? Maybe, did I not sin too badly this week? would be in the mix too. Do you want to be very clear? Those two things are great things. They're important things. But that's not all that we're called to do in our places of work and our studies. When you put, your, put work in for your team this week, you were doing this stuff. 
We can do it negatively and positively, I suppose, in a sense of things we don't do and things we do do. When you decide, I'm not going to contribute to the blame culture at my work, and I'm not going to moan and complain about my boss, even when there might be a reason to moan and complain, what you're doing is saying, I am not letting this work descend into chaos. I'm going to stand for order here. Sacred work. Very important. When you decide, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to this. I'm going to take this extra responsibility I've been given. I'm going to do the, the extra, extra work. I'm going to support my colleague. I'm going to work on the infrastructure of your job. What are you doing? You're doing what God's called us all to do. And I want to say to you, those of you who are, who are working hard five days a week, and even some of you feeling guilty and think, I wish I could be a better Christian. I want to say, God has given you a vocation, and at the end of the day, he won't be saying, well done, good and faithful servant, please take this in the right way, by how many prayers you've prayed out on a Sunday morning. Did you do the job I gave you to do? And some of you are doing it brilliantly. I want to say, good work. Many are doing it brilliantly. Good work and keep going. So what of those, the few of us then who are working for churches or Christian organizations? What about me? Poor old me. I'm just working for the church. What's my part in this? Well, I think there's been a real mistake, and I'm so sorry if we've perpetuated this in the church, that kind of builds churches. The, the church, you guys, you revolve around the minister. You're here to serve my ministry, okay? I hope we've not done that, but I'm, I know that's heard sometimes. I want to say, if we've ever done anything, I'm so sorry, because it's the wrong way around. Friend uses this image, and I, I increasingly I think this is spot on. Who am I? What am I as a church leader? I'm a cheerleader for you guys. I'm not joking. That's my job. I ran a half marathon a couple of years ago. Well, four or five years ago. <laughs> I think. My memory's gone. I can't even remember. Did I do it? But I do remember in the fuzzy memories of the past, running along, and there are people on the sides cheering you along, just strangers, going, yeah, go for it. And they didn't just cheer even. They, they'd kind of offer you water and jelly babies and stuff like that. Jelly babies. Well, this is good. Right, jelly babies. Good for your energy. And I want to do that. I want to be like that. We want as leaders want to be like that. Saying, come on, keep going. Keep going. Not like with a stick going, keep going. It's your duty. They're going, keep going. Here's some resources to help you. We want to do what we can. We want to grab some more water for you. Here you go. This church, as a church, we want to help you and equip you to keep doing God's work as effectively as possible in your workplaces, however chaotic they are, particularly maybe if they are very chaotic. But we can't leave it there. Because actually what we see as we go through human history is that it's not just Christians who understand this calling that we've got. It might be today you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, and you think, actually, you know what, I, I identify with this. I quite like bringing order and life in the chaos, to put it like that. And that's, it's a, it's a, there's something I think that's been built into our instincts as humans that is a human response. We want to bring order and life. None of us really like chaos. Some of us are kind of intrigued by it, but we, we're afraid of that, and rightly so. But when you look at human history... What we see is that it's littered with example after example of people who go out to do this, but they either stop too short and let the chaos take over and win, or they go too far and they regiment things so much, they impose a kind of order that is harsh, that is restrictive, and that's domineering. And so you might say, well, if that's what happens when you try this, why bother? Because it just causes more chaos. Well, the the reason I think we've got more to say here is because the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't just give us a job description, doesn't just tell us what to do in the job description. 
it also tells us the resources that are available to us to help us achieve the job. You know, if you have a job description today defining what you do at work, I'm sure it tells you these are what you should do, but it should also tell you, and these are how we will help you do it, okay? So maybe you can claim expenses. Maybe you have these people who will help you do the job you can report to. Well, actually, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 does the same. Let's just go back, and I spoke on this a couple of weeks ago, but I'll refresh our memories. I wonder if anyone can, can think back already what it is. But let's go to Genesis 2, to Eden now. Human beings, given this job... And they're put in Eden. And uh, Eden, Garden of Eden, is a place full of lots of special things, okay? You've got gold, you've got rivers, you've got special trees. But it's only defined by one thing. There is one thing that defines Eden above all others, and it's the presence of the living God. That's what defines Eden. Genesis 3, verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. What was God doing? It, it was a place where he could just walk about. He was at ease. He's familiar. Heaven and earth overlapped on each other perfectly, in perfect synchronicity. God's presence is in the garden. That's what we see from the story. And when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, and they put the, uh, the cherubims there with his sword saying, don't come back in. You can't come back in. You know what? I can tell you what they weren't talking about as they left that garden. As they walked glumly away east of Eden, Eve did not turn to Adam and say, Oh, gutted. Those pomegranates were so juicy. I am going to miss them. The ones out here, they just don't cut the mustard. That didn't happen, okay? Can't cut mustard with apples, can you? Apple and mustard, that works. Anyway, sorry, brain back in gear. Adam did not then turn to Eve and say, Yeah, I, I can't believe it. This is so disappointing. Just one more dip in the river Pishon was all I needed. That's all I'm missing. They didn't say that. What did they miss? They missed the thing that defined the garden. I'm sure they did. The presence of God. Because they'd look around them and God's not walking with them. And God's not next to them. God's not at ease with them. He's not speaking to them. He's not listening to them. And it wasn't just the loss of God's companionship they'd have missed. That'd be bad enough. It was worse. Because they still knew, deep down, they had a job to do. The job of filling and governing, bringing order and life in the chaos. But now, the key resource that would enable them to do that job effectively was gone. It was completely missing, the presence of God. And so, we found it. We've got to the end of our journey of discovery. Our third point today, in answer to another ama amazingly important question. What do human beings need most well, this passage tells us that too, particularly in light of this task we've been given. What do we need most? We need God's presence to do what we were made for. We need God's presence to do what we were made for. Let's give a couple of words on this just before we, we close and just ground this in. What does this mean for us? Okay. First thing we've got to say, it's important to recognize, we can't go on without is this shouldn't be a possibility for us anymore. This shouldn't be on the table anymore for us. When we look at the story uh, of Adam and Eve, uh, we have to see ourselves in this story. And when they uh, lost the privilege of knowing God's intimate presence through their sin, so our sin naturally has the same effect. Our decisions to live independently, autonomously from our Creator, our rebellion against our Creator, and they forfeit the right to God's presence. However, 
And it's a huge however, and it's a however that I hope you dwell on daily, hourly even. What Jesus did for us fixes this problem and puts the presence of God back on the table. One of the words that's used most in the New Testament for what Jesus did on the cross for us is he reconciled us. Reconciliation is what happens when people who aren't friends become friends again. But this isn't a 21st century reconciliation we're talking about here. Jesus didn't say, all right then, I'll unblock you from my phone. (laughs) I will receive your messages. I might even answer the odd email or I might, let's be friends again on Facebook. That's not the reconciliation that happened. The reconciliation is a real reconciliation that means the presence of God is back to us again. He wants to live with us again. And so Paul can write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, that for every one of you Christians here, those who follow Jesus, your body is a what? I heard it muttered. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Refer back a few weeks if you were there. If you weren't, you can still pick it up. It's a temple. It's a place where God lives. And we'd often go to that verse straight away with this, but we've got to make sure we can quickly move on from that verse because stopping there is really unhelpful. Because you see, that verse is an exception in the New Testament. When the New Testament usually refers to this amazing reality, it makes it very clear that, that the place where God lives most specially now is not in us as individual Christians. It's not in me and you. It's in local communities of Christians. It's in churches. This is much more normal New Testament language, 2 Corinthians 6.16. We are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2.22, Paul talks to the Ephesians church as a dwelling where God lives by his spirit. As we close, and I just drill down on this one last time, I want to ask, how can we enjoy the presence of God most fruitfully then? And I want to just throw something at you that we often miss here. We often think of enjoying the presence of God, not wrongly, but we think of it like this. For those who've been to a church like this for a while, others you might find this weird. But it's like, in a, you might be with lots of other people, but it's essentially me and Jesus. We do that because you close your eyes and you block out everyone else. Everyone else is just a potential distraction at that moment. Have you ever been there where you've had your hands up, read it, Jesus, me and you, and someone has the audacity to nudge you? Have you ever done that? You touched my arm. You invaded my space. What is it? It's me and Jesus. Come on. You know, and we individualize all of this stuff. You know, I'm not saying that's not helpful to do that particular thing, but it's definitely not helpful to see the presence of God in that way because actually there's a communal element to it. What's the closest thing to Eden we have today is the church. That's what it is. And that means, yes, we come to church meetings. I'd encourage you in the rivers this evening, I encourage you to come and we, we want to come ready and thirsty for God's presence and thirsty for God to meet with us. But it actually means a lot more than that. It means actually that as we seek to love one another in our church, and we commit to one another, be honest with one another, forgive one another, support one another, be patient with one another, think the best of one another, work alongside one another, we are entering into God's temple. And I can't tell you exactly the nuts and bolts of how it works You may feel nothing. There may be no experience involved at all. You might not do it in a church meeting. You might be over a coffee. might be on the phone. might be uh, sending a WhatsApp message. might be as you just sit there and think, I will forgive you. I will think the best of you. I will not give in to, to a negativity and a bitterness that might arise here in our relationship. 
You might feel nothing at those times, but as you do those things, as you do church, in a mysterious way, you are opening a doorway to God's presence that is unique and can only be done in that way. And without that presence, we cannot do the job we were made to do. But let's not end that way around. Let's change the order of that sentence. With that presence, which is now on the table again for us, walking with God, kind of like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we can confidently go out into the chaos and bring God's life and order. Let's pray.